Hi, everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about Le Demi-Monde 2020. From Wikipedia, Demi-Monde is French for half-world. The term derives from a play called Le Demi-Monde by Alexandre Dumas-Fils. Published in 1855, he was the son of Alexandre Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers. The play dealt with the way that prostitution at that time threatened the institution of marriage. The demimonde was a world occupied by elite men and the women who entertained them and whom they kept. The pleasure-loving and dangerous world Dumas immortalized in the novel La Dame au Camélia and its many adaptations. Demimondaine became a synonym for courtesan or a prostitute who moved in these circles or for a woman of social standing with the power to thumb her nose at convention and throw herself into the hedonistic nightlife. A woman who made that choice would soon find her social status lost as she became déclassée. The film Gigi, based on a novella by Colette, vividly portrays the world of the demi-monde near the end of its existence. Gigi's Aunt Alicia, a legendary courtesan now enjoying a wealthy retirement, trains her teenage niece in elegant manners and deportment and the value of jewels and tries to stir her interest in fashion in order to prepare her for the life of the demimonde, pleasing the gentleman who will provide her with the means to live beautifully or miserably. For the men, the high life of the demimonde was isolated from the other world of wives and families and duties, if any. It embraced heavy drinking, drug use, gambling, attending the theater and ballet and horse races, the pursuit of high fashion in every aspect of life, and, of course, sexual promiscuity. Lavish spending led to indebtedness. The promiscuity led to disease. Historically, the period known in France as La Belle Époque, from 1871 to 1914, from the end of the Franco-Prussian War to the beginning of the World War, comes close to embracing the heyday of the demi The 20th century brought the rise of the new woman changing economies and social structures, as well as changing fashions and social mores, particularly in the aftermath of the World War. Prostitution and the keeping of mistresses did not appear, but the label demi-mondaine became obsolete as the half-world changed. Externally, the defining aspects of the demi-monde were an extravagant lifestyle of fine food and clothes, often surpassing that of other wealthy women of their day, with a steady income of cash and gifts from their various lovers. Internally, their lifestyle was an eclectic mixture of sharp business acumen, social skills, and hedonism. Intelligent demi-mondaines, like the fictional Gigi's grandmother, would invest their wealth for the day when their beauty faded. Others ended up penniless and starving when age took its toll on their beauty, unless they managed to marry. A famous beauty was Virginia Oldioni, Countess de Castillon, who came to Paris in the 1850s with very little money of her own, and soon became mistress of Napoleon III. After that relationship ended, she moved on to other wealthy men in government, finance, and European royalty. She was one of the most aristocratic and exclusive of the demi-mondaines, reputed to have charged a member of the British aristocracy one million francs for 12 hours in her company. Another woman who doubtless influenced later images of the demi-mondaine was the dancer and adventuress Lola Montez, 
though she died before the term came into general use. The actress Sarah Bernhardt was the illegitimate child of a courtesan. In her day, all actresses were generally considered demi-mondaines. Her many lovers and extravagant lifestyle fit the type, though her genuine success as an artist and innovator eventually gained her a kind of public esteem most demi-mondaines never achieved. Descriptions of the demi-monde can be found in Vanity Fair in 1848, a novel which satirizes 19th century society written by William Makepeace Thackeray. Although it does not mention the terms demi-monde and demi-mondaine, they were coined later, the terms were later used by reviewers and other authors in reference to three characters in it. Lady Crackenbury and Mrs. Washington White are demi-monde characters, both of whom Captain Rawdon Crawley lusts after in his younger days. Becky Sharp is perceived as a demi-mondaine before she is presented at court, and then becomes one when she travels through Europe after her husband abandons her. Possibly the most famous portrayal of the demi-monde, albeit from before the word was coined, is in Verdi's opera La Traviata. In 1853, the opera, in turn, was inspired by Alexandre Dumas the Younger's La Dame aux Camélia. Marguerite Gautier, the heroine of the book and subsequent play, was based on Marie Duplessis, an 1840s Paris courtesan and mistress to a number of prominent men, including Dumas. She would be famously represented on stage by the aforementioned Sarah Bernhardt. In writing his 1924 play Easy Virtue, Noel Coward stated his object was to present a comedy in the structure of a tragedy to compare the déclassé woman of today with the more flamboyant demi-mondaine of the 1890s. In A Little Night Music, 1973 by Stephen Sondheim, the main female character, Desiree Armfelt, is an actress whose mother, Madame Leonora Armfelt, sings a song, Liaisons, which describes the material benefits of being a serially kept woman. For example, at the villa of Baron de Signac, where I spent a somewhat infamous year at the villa of the Baron de Signac, I had ladies in attendance. Fire Opal Pendants in The 7% Solution, 1976, the character Lola Devereaux is labeled a demi-mondaine by the character Sigmund Freud. In Henry Senkowitz's Without Dogma in 1891, the demi refers to the affluent, pleasure-seeking portion of society, unbound by morals, religion, or tradition, and is loosely analogous to the jet set of modern times. In Marcel Proust's Swan's Way, 1913, Odette de Cressy is described as a demi-mondaine. Francois Segan, in her novel Bonjour Tristesse, uses the term demi-mondaine to refer to the character Elsa, a young, stunningly attractive woman who leverages her appearance into support by wealthy men, which allows her entrance into the social world of the upper classes. The high society men in Peter Matthew Hillsman Taylor's novella, The Old Forest, from the story collection of the same name in 1985, uses demimond to refer to a group of adventurous and intelligent young women in 1937 Memphis, Tennessee, and the story, it is common for the men to continue courting such demi-mondaines right up until the time they are married to high society women. The term also repeatedly appears in James Joyce's Ulysses. In Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy in the 1990s, the demi-mond refers to a semi-tolerated, off-the-net society of commerce and education. I frequently think of the David Lynch cinematic demi-mond. I've been in a few of those scenarios, and they are nerve-wracking. Example, 
you accept an invitation to a company or find yourself accompanying someone you have recently become friendly with but don't know very well to, say, visit a friend of this person, your spider sense tingles as you descend into an atmosphere of paranoia, drugs, weapons, and threatening language, both verbal and physical. You just want to get out of there ASAP and wash your hands of the individual who brought you there. And you definitely have to leave the premises within the next few minutes or you are going to be extremely uncomfortable, which was often the case. And it was prolonged and seemed to last forever. And your friend, who you will now keep your distance from, is somewhat nonplussed at your discomfort, as if this unseemly melodrama is part and parcel of everyday living, which it most certainly is not for you anyway. Or, in another scenario... You go out after work with some of the crew, and one guy insists that you accompany him to a party or to meet a connection for whatever reason, and it becomes clear that these people do not operate under the scrutiny of bright lights. They live in the shadows. And somewhat mutually exclusively, I never even knew about the after-hours lifestyle that existed in the suburbs while I was living there until I happened by chance to hit a vein with a few co-workers and found myself at places I did not know, boy, I didn't know existed, and did not enjoy. But they were hiding in plain sight, and the people who populated them were people, the likes of whom I had not been aware of, urban or suburban. Sort of like meeting the chicken lady from Kids in the Hall in real life and trying to maintain your composure. Suddenly your lips purse, your eyes bug out of your head, and you look for the exits. What the hell is going on here? Where do these people come from? How long has this been going on? Wait, I don't want to know. I know more now than I ever wanted or needed to know. I want to sleep this off and cut off all connections to these weirdos. And these are the type of weirdos who will appear at your door with no notice, invitation, or appreciation. And also, people I thought I knew and suddenly see a completely different aspect of who are familiar and comfortable with sketchy types and had a titanic ability to consume harmful substances. Their personality alters and you suddenly question your relationship with this person. The entire gay demimon didn't even really get started for me until around 3.30 a.m. And that is from my experience in the New York area. I have been told of the Demimon in places like Orlando and Environs, and it is something to hear of several houses on cul-de-sacs being used as after-hours party venues, with one house in the center as the main venue, while the other houses are basically buffers to block out the sound and use as parking lots. I remember being a regular in a gay bar, and the manager, who was now a very successful event producer these days, would come on the PA around 3.20 a.m. and announce that the last train back to Long Island was due to leave soon. They stopped at around 3.39, if I recall. And people would scatter. Then he would say something about last call because on top of closing for the night, he knew very well that many of us who were still hanging around would be making our way to an after-hours club. And if we wanted to keep on drinking, <laughs> we needed to say goodnight, get to a deli before 4 a.m., buy our tall boys, gain entrance into the after-hours club, and check your beer with the bartender at the after-hours club. The process was you bought your own, checked it along with anything else you wanted, Often with many guys, it was articles of clothing and personal effects. They kept tabs on it, and you tipped them as if you were buying drinks whenever you got another beer until it was gone. The sun was warm many a morning after leaving a crowded after-hours club in the meatpacking district. And I am no saint, but I am also able to at least recognize, after enough, shall I say, experimentation, that I am not cut out for that specifically hardcore side of life. I've had my share 
well, a few other people's too, of what I refer to as experiences in the gay demimon. But like everything else, you need to regain and maintain your grasp of reality or it will slip away. As I spoke of in my pod, 2ZQHT9, the Crystal Crisis remix. And that was just the gay stuff. Now, the illegal casinos in New York, again, with the devil worshippers, the brothels all over the place, including our building, and of course, drugs. There are very many apocryphal stories about the Demimonde, and I have unintentionally observed a suburban blue velvet-esque existence, have encountered a few Frank Buck types in unnerving scenarios, and had friends who lost their way, took to drugs and crime, and ultimately met their doom after years of substance abuse and antisocial behavior in the frankly quite disturbing Demimonde of drug-induced insanity all the while living a middle-class suburban life and the disparity between the idealized tract homes with manicured lawns, swimming pools, and rec rooms with draft beer and big-screen TVs, or what they passed for in those days, makes the contrast even more stark than they are with regards to the urban landscape, where you are much less likely to see exactly how people live. Or it is an in-and-out thing because there are other places you could go to instead of your tiny little flat. I have personally made it a policy to avoid people after I have seen the way they live when it is apparent they are not concerned with a number of the basics and instead focus on satisfying immediate desires and indulgences over matters like using Windex and dusting and vacuuming and practical stuff. I do think the urban experience feels more like a part of a continuum that confirms what you might have already perceived rather than a trip to an alternate reality that you might find in the suburban landscape. The ever-present threat of deathly violence is right next to a lot of this stuff, too. Urban or suburban? And we turn a blind eye to it because it is easier than dealing with that threat. We just kid ourselves and think it is all pulp fiction, but it is real. It's edgy, not malignant. It's cool, not stupid. It's just a kid's game, not pathologically insane. It's just that weirdo, not a network of sickos. It's just harmless self-indulgent. We all need a release valve. Just a bit of illicit fun to spice up our lives. Not a dangerous foray into an environment full of treachery and deceit. It's right there. But we only think of it as we decide we want or need it, and not a 24-7 operation that potentially undermines the stability of day-to-day living, or lowers the standards of day-to-day living. Your oddball neighbor... The mysterious apartment with the numerous silent visitors all day and all night. The completely unfamiliar strangers appearing in the foyer or hallways of your building day after day who are not delivering any packages or food. The thing is, it exists in plain sight and we tend to gloss over it. Excuse common sense responses to it as emotional. You have undealt with issues. It's an exaggeration or some sort of reactionary politics, like people who freak out over trick-or-treating by claiming that it is the devil's work and we are pawns of Satan, or that buying Molly or the occasional bump isn't doing any harm to anyone. Don't freak out about it. Chill out, man. It's cool. Is it? And the drugs thing. We had a next-door neighbor who dealt drugs, and his door opened and closed about 50 times a day. I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who ever lived in a fifth floor walk-up who had that many friends. The experience was horrific, drawn out, and ultimately unpleasant, to say the least. 
The druggies and their acquaintances make it a point to observe the comings and goings of people, both the drug dealers and their neighbors, and know the rhythms of life that they live by. They look at the locks, cameras, security features, and make note of them. They see how you dress. They notice any rings you wear. They see how you groom. If you look fancy, you are probably a target, and you just shrug them off as someone you see or meet in passing. But no. They want drugs, money, and don't care what they have to do to get them. They do, however, follow the path of least resistance to get them, and that can include weapons and violence, whatever is more expedient. I speak from first-hand experience. These are people who have either never been exposed to, never embraced, or have just forsaken all pretense of positive social interaction. Life has been reduced to urges, physical and psychological addictions, and delusional beliefs. They have dispensed with the proprieties, and they exist alongside us. I literally had friends who I lost contact with over the years, and when I came upon them by chance, was startled at their decline as human beings. I once knew bright, motivated, socially engaging people who had become addicts, who dismissed their situation as at least not being in jail. Oh boy. Or, more dastardly, nonchalantly explained to me their M.O. of robbing their suburban neighbors. They knew when people were going out for the evening or out of town by observation, word of mouth from their partners in crime, and or even listening in on relatives' conversations. were familiar with most houses' layouts and understood that people kept the jewelry in their bedrooms, other items usually kept in predictable locations, and proceeded to gain entrance through back doors or side windows or basement entrances while the neighbors were distracted and robbed these houses blind. They would proceed to a fence. Yeah, a fence, usually in Brooklyn. Sell the gold chains, watches, rings, and whatever else they got their grubby hands on for drugs. And take those drugs and more that completely disassociated them from reality. Codeine, opium, methadone, heroin, crystal, you name it. On top of acid, booze, weed, cocaine, and anything else they could use to simultaneously stimulate themselves to keep the party going and numb themselves from the world around them. And all this time I am with them. I am hearing the theme from the Twilight Zone playing in my head, and I am thinking as hard as I can to come up with excuses to extricate myself from this chance meeting and avoid them like the plague going forward. I have since learned that virtually all of them met their demise from drug abuse or the consequences of drug abuse. And I do recall being brought to the homes of people who literally lived on the wrong side of the tracks. And when you got there, there was clearly no adult supervision, as in the adults had abdicated any responsibility whatsoever. Everything from illegal dangerous animals indiscreetly, unsafely caged and kept to be sold to illegal animal dealers, they really do exist, not just the Tiger King, to unmaintained dumps of houses on dead ends with broken windows, cracked, crumbling concrete driveways, damaged, punched through sheetrock interior walls, broken appliances and plumbing, shot-up interiors, collapsing garages, unmowed, mostly crabgrass lawns, peeling paint, and just a slew of red flags that say, do not enter. But they are right there in that neighborhood. And the property value suffers, as does the quality of life. But not in your neighborhood. No, sir. Imagine being reduced to a life of crime just to get high. One or two of them has sobered up and regained control of their lives, and I applaud them for doing so. Meanwhile, the lawns are getting mowed, the cars are getting washed, 
The backyard grills are wafting with the aromas of steaks, hot dogs, chicken, and burgers cooking over open flames, and everything appears to be ideal. The entire neighborhood raises flags corresponding to the next holiday or occasion. There are adornments on the facades to signify a life moment like a graduation or a religious ritual or an event of some kind. And your fit, attractive, influential urban neighbors are coming and going to and from the gym and the hot spots they take their instas at. And maybe, just maybe, it is supposed to have that duality. What do I know? Maybe one needs the other to exist, like Batman and the Joker. Also, the stories of straight suburban relatives inviting you to a barbecue with friends from the neighborhood, and then at one point during the proceedings being hurriedly escorted into a room inside the house while you were surrounded by relatives and their friends, all intensely asking what you, as a representative of the LGBT community and the closest thing they have to an authority on the subject of gaydar, make of one of the guests. And you realize that part of the reason you were invited was for them to get your take on if you think this guy is a closet case or not, because their marriage seems a little out of kilter compared to everyone else at the party. Oh, you guys really owe me a few more drinks right now. And then you hear of the apocryphal by-dad orgies, which is so strange, conveniently arranged to occur near schools so that when they are over, dad can matter-of-factly pick up the kids. And when mom asks what he did, he said he had lunch with a few of the guys and talked about helping Mike build his new shed or something. I've only heard these stories and never experienced this specifically firsthand, but have met a few married guys whose eyes have that special look when they are introduced to me and it's known that I am an out gay man. They lean in a little, and the handshake lingers a little bit too long, and that smile means to infer something I am not really appreciative of. It's creepy. I had a friend who was also a co-worker, and he had a lucrative side gig as a blackjack dealer at a floating illegal casino in New York City. He was a Brit from London who had previously worked at casinos in the Caribbean, and while living there, drove a convertible sports car and wore a tux to work. He was the closest thing many women who were on holiday would ever come to James Bond. He knew it, and he exploited that until he met his wife and fell in love. They got married. They settled down. They moved to New York. They started a family. He could not provide enough with the income based on the job he worked at, so he hooked up with gambling connections and got a gig as a dealer at an illegal floating casino. Just like a trope in a movie or a TV show, the whole shebang, and it vanished as soon as it appeared, from place to place. This happened every day, and nobody batted an eye, hiding in plain sight. I am told that they still exist. It is like being unaware of crack houses if you don't have anything to do with crack, or brothels if you don't patronize them, but they are there, right there. You just don't fix your gaze on them. Racetracks are another thing altogether. And New York City had OTB, or off-track betting, which was a place you could go and still can at a number of places outside of the city in New York State and bet on horses the same way you could bet on horses in person at the track. The track was and is always something else. The people you see at the track are like no other people you see anywhere, except OTB, which for the most part has been shut down in New York City. That Damon Runyon thing was a romantic notion. When the day arrived that OTB closed in New York City, Many people were upset, not because they lost their place to bet, but because they were relatives and acquaintances of the patrons of OTB and knew that OTB was the safest, easiest place to find them. At least we know where they are, was a common refrain. Now, 
They will go to bookies and crap games and get into real trouble. We knew where to find them, and that was taken away. The trek. Something timeless and completely alien at the same time. The people. The touts. Their manner of dress. The jargon they use. The urgency. The desperation. The atmosphere. At OTB, the crummy takeout food in those round aluminum containers and plastic forks. You leave fully confident that you will never see the vast majority of these people in your normal life. I'm also reminded of What We Do in the Shadows, the TV series about vampires on Staten Island, and my previous pod, 2ZQHD59, The Devil and Mr. Tim. The idea that occult worship has been so normalized that we see the diluted aspects of it everywhere and laugh it off, thinking of it as harmless or ineffectual, but there are deep connections to dark motives. Even innocuous places that sell crystals to all those seeking to heal their chakras are further maintaining the proposition that these retail experiences are unconnected to the occult, but they are. And it's just not me saying so. There's lots of documentation. And they operate as healing centers or mystical portals or whatever blather anybody dreams up and anybody buys into. And we often associate it with candy. We had a brothel operating in the building we live in for eight years. Eight years. The hookers had a madam. A bloated, drug-addicted, unpleasant, abusive, antisocial madam. She was not there every day, but she made the occasional appearance. Oh, giddy. It was a comical series of mishaps and legal missteps that kept the place going in our building for that long. It really was painted bordello red. We saw the door open on a few occasions. The girls were all dancers at a nearby strip club that has long since closed up and has been replaced by a deli. The girls were all stone-cold junkies, too. I mean junkies. Junkies. They would often take their johns up to the roof, which was a monumental feat for these energy-depleted prostitutes to climb a few flights and go up to the roof and shoot up, have unprotected sex, and share needles. How they did not fall off and plummet to the pavement below is amazing to me. We would occasionally go up on the roof after they had been up there, like the next day or a few days afterward, and see the needles scattered all over the place. Whenever they would go to the effort of taking out their garbage, the weight of what was usually something like a five-pound bag or so was usually such a burden on their drug-addled bodies that they could not carry it and would drag it from the third floor to the second floor garbage room. And they leaked some disturbingly foreign liquid substance every time. They always left a slug trail. Really, we would see some of these guys who patronized them and shook our heads in disbelief, ultimately accepting that this was uh, uh, their fetish. One guy was an extremely well-dressed, professional-looking, well-built, handsome man who was actually dashing, and he visited these junkie hookers all the time. Okay. On occasion, as we would come home and enter the building, we would be suddenly swarmed and surrounded in the foyer by a group of, let's say, 19 to 21-year-old youths. Not frightening at all at night. They would usually inform us that they had been invited to a party. You are going to be taking antibiotics for a long time, boys. And right now, 
there seems to be a cease in the more obvious underworld action, or at the very least, it has gone further underground. Oh boy. What happened to all that cash? If the Demimond is a release valve, it is not being opened up to any apparent extent these days. What happens when you can't release the stress, the tension, ease the anxiety? There is currently no place to go out to. There are no places available for close personal contact. Social distancing is the rule of the day, but a lot of people don't obey the rules. I'm seeing a lot of pics and videos of people's cooking and their home fitness regimes. I don't know that there is enough satisfaction in those practices to decompress an entire population. It's like when Patsy on Absolutely Fabulous gets estrogen injections and suddenly becomes a domestic goddess. You just knew that wouldn't last. But that was funny. Vive le demi-monde. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Thank you.